The Buddha is said to have been an extremely skillful teacher. The other day, Andrea mentioned how he was tracking someone during their meditation and could give them just the right instruction at just the right moment. Kind of an example of that uh, understanding of the Buddha being such a skilled teacher. One of the ways I think this manifests for us, at least, and we don't have the luxury of being able to stumble into the Buddha in a potter's shed. But in exploring his teachings, he offered, uh, often would use analogies for uh, deepening someone's understanding of the teachings. And I think analogies are um, often useful because they can provide something that is familiar from our lives that as it's connected with the teachings that sense of that experience in our lives becomes something that we can uh, recollect and the teachings come alive for us through that, through that example. The Buddha was really a master of analogies. I find, as I reflect on his teachings and explore the analogies in some depth, I find more and more layers to his his analogies that can really help to us help us to unpack some of his wisdom. And so tonight. I'd like to take a couple of analogies and explore them with you to kind of unpack them and look at all the different pieces of the analogies and how the teachings are related to those different pieces. And what we can learn as we reflect on that analogy. And so for this talk, there are two analogies that I'd like to explore that cover kind of similar terrain. The Buddha actually often used analogies about water in his teachings. And in this particular case, he used the analogy of a flood or a large expanse of water. And the idea of crossing that flood as being what our journey is crossing a flood of, um, in this case, greed, aversion, and delusion. And so in one of these flood analogies, the Buddha actually equates this large expanse of water with what, with a, a list, one of the lists that he calls the four floods. And these four are the flood of sensuality, the flood of existence or becoming, the flood of views, and the flood of ignorance. They're called floods. That's my understanding of why they're called floods is because they keep us submerged in dukkha kind of keep pulling us back to our habitual ways of orienting in the world. 
And so they kind of, they kind of make it challenging for us to cross to freedom. And so this is, this understanding that we have to cross this terrain is what these analogies point to. So my own sense, the Buddha, the Buddha pointed to these four aspects as being the floods, the flood of sensuality, of becoming, of views and of ignorance. But in a simpler way, and for me it's meaningful to think of them, think of the flood, this expanse of water that we're trying to cross as really the flood of greed, aversion, and delusion. These very familiar forces of mind that make it really hard for us to navigate our lives with ease. We keep getting caught by them, stuck by them, pulled into eddies, pulled into whirlpools, swept downstream by these states of mind. There can even be that sense of being swept away as one of these sticky states captures us, being pulled by a current. And so again, this this imagery of uh, the flood has some connection to what happens in our minds, being swept away by greed, aversion, and delusion. So these two similes, these two analogies, the first one is, it's a very famous one. Many of you have probably heard it, if not all of you have heard of the simile of the raft. But I'd like to look at each of these pieces of this simile because as I began exploring it, again, it, it really began speaking to me in different ways. So I'll read the first part of this. Suppose someone in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge for going to the far shore. So this sets our image, this sets our analogy, sets a stage for us. So looking at these various pieces, there's the near shore, which is dangerous and fearful. In another, um, in another sutta that uses a very similar imagery, the Buddha says the near shore is, is, is how we identify. It's these, it's these identities that we connect to, that we hook to, that we get stuck to. Identities are often strategies for us, familiar ways of navigating our lives, navigating what's challenging. We have familiar, habitual strategies that we have learned, that have been conditioned for us. That at times, and in many ways as we grew up, helped us to navigate challenging situations perhaps. And yet, even though they have been perhaps helpful for us during our lives, they have a kind of an inherent uh, suffering to them. There's an inherent kind of what the Buddha calls danger 
on this side, this near shore, this near shore of identity, of identification. We try to make ourselves feel stable and secure through identities. I'm the kind of person who that kind of um, landing in a in an, in an identity often is a way of finding safety or security. We think it feels safe and secure, but actually, it's anything but. As we cling to identities, and we can cling to different kinds of identities. I'm certainly seen myself cling to identities such as self-hatred that I would, in, in seeing it and seeing how I'm clinging to it, I think, why on earth do I cling to this? But that kind of identity, which we do cling to, you know, we do cling to those kinds of identities of you're no good, you're a failure. Um, they're inherently, I mean, they're inherently suffering. We, 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 we know the suffering of those immediately when they come. And as to why we cling to them, the mind thinks it's getting something out of it. That's a whole talk in and of itself. I won't try to go into that at this moment. But look in your own mind. You know, there's, there's often beliefs in there. There's often a sense of, um, you know, for me, in a way, that self-hatred uh, was kind of a way to um, make myself not, like if I, if I hated myself enough, I would do the right thing, kind of. You know, that kind of thing. So sad, you know, to see that in our own minds. And then other kinds of identities that we have. We hold to identities of being, you know, uh, someone who knows what they're doing or someone who um, does certain things in a certain way. And often with those kinds of identities, we are invested in making sure that other people have that identity of us too, that other people see us in that way. We spend time, part of the trap of those kinds of identities is trying to get people, convince people, no, that's who I am. That's, that's me. That's who I am. It's an endless project to try to make sure others see, others see us through that identity, and we suffer when they don't. And so this is the near shore the Buddha points to, this... this uh, sense of self, the identities, the um, congealings of ourselves. And then the expanse of water. In this analogy, we have the near shore, which is dangerous. The expanse of water, where there's no bridge, no ferry boat to cross it. But the far shore which we know is safe and free from fear. And so we'd like to try to get across this expanse of water. So in this analogy, this expanse of water is the flood, the flood of greed, aversion, delusion. And as I reflected this evening about this analogy of the near shore being identity 
and the flood being what keeps us from the, the, the flood that's difficult to cross, that keeps us from reaching the place of safety. I reflected on these four floods of sensuality, of, of existence or becoming, of views and of ignorance as being those activities of mind, of patterns of mind, habits of mind, we could say, that make it difficult to let go of these strategies of identities. They keep sweeping us back, these views that we have, views and beliefs and ignorance keep sweeping us back thinking, oh, this identity, these identities are how I feel safe. And so this, the strategies of the identities are, are hard to um, let go of because of views, because of ignorance, because we're drawn to sense pleasure. So they make it hard for us to realize the possibility of release from the perspective of identification. And then the far shore, in this analogy, the Buddha equates with freedom, Nibbana. The most succinct definition of Nibbana that I have heard through the teachings of the Buddha is the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. It's a letting go of greed, aversion, and delusion that is the ultimate safety. In this analogy, the far shore seems like a place or something. But the definition of freedom in the Buddha's teachings is freedom from. Freedom from greed, freedom from aversion, freedom from delusion. It's not having anything. I like this because it really points to, well, I like this for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, it's like greed, aversion, and delusion are like we have a handle on those. We know we know what they're like. You know, we 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 re- we recognize them through our meditation. We begin to really touch into these qualities of greed, aversion, and delusion. And the fact that the Buddha defines freedom as the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion to me makes it seem like something that might be possible in this very life. Every now and then I've had a taste, perhaps, of a mind that lets go of greed. And that's a pointing to this possibility. If Nibbana, when I first started practicing and I heard this idea of enlightenment, or even before I started practicing, when I was in my 20s, I heard about enlightenment and I had some idea of it being some transcendent thing that you have to get to or attain, or have. But this teaching about Nibbana being the release of greed, aversion, and delusion, 
to me, makes it seem like something possible in this very life. And in fact, that is what the Buddha says. Nibbana can be touched, freedom in this very life. And so, you know, I can imagine perhaps what it might be to walk around in my daily life I mean, I, I can kind of imagine. I can't. I can't really imagine, but, but I mean, it, it's not. It doesn't seem too far fetched to me that I could walk around in my daily life and interact with my family and friends in that place of freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. Whereas, whatever this idea of mind-blowing enlightenment, that's not anything related to being connected with my friends and family. <laughs> At least that was the case for me. And so to me, it really brings this teaching of freedom. It's inspiring for me. It brings it into the, into the possibility of living freely. So the next part of the analogy. So this person seeing this Expanse of water, the near shore dangerous, the far shore safe, thought. There is this great expanse of water whose near shore is dangerous and fearful and whose further shore is safe and free from fear. But there's no ferry boat or bridge for going to that far shore. Suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves and bind them together into a raft. And supported by the raft, and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. And so the person collected grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and bound them together into a raft. And supported by the raft, and making an effort with hands and feet, they got safely across to the far shore. So this is the raft. This is the piece of the analogy that's the raft. This whole talk was really inspired by a reflection from Ajahn Sumedho about this raft. In one of his essays, he wrote, The Buddha referred to his teaching as a raft, which you can make out of the things around you, the grass, the twigs, the leaves. You don't have to have a special motorboat or submarine or luxury liner. A raft is something you make from the things around just to get to the other shore. We're not trying to make a super-duper vehicle. We're just able to use what's around us for enlightenment. I like this reflection. You know, what's around us? On the near shore, it's twigs and leaves and grass. But here, what's around us? Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch things happening in the mind. That's part of what we build the raft out of, our present moment experience. That's what's available. That is our raft, our present moment experience, our sense experience. We also build the raft out of the teachings. And the Buddha in 
his description, uh, his own exploration of this analogy. He said, the raft is the Noble Eightfold Path. And so I think of that as being the binding that holds the grass, the leaves, the twigs together. The, the, maybe the, the twine or the mud that takes it all together to make it into something that can float across the, across the river. And then we think about being on that raft, being on that raft in the swirls and eddies of this expanse of water. It's a raft. You know, it might be falling apart as we're going across. We are definitely getting wet. We are in contact with the flood. We are touching the flood. We are touching all of that greed, aversion, and delusion with the Eightfold Path keeping us afloat. But we are getting wet. We're getting wet. It's not a mistake. It's not a mistake when in our practice we turn to our experience, our sights, our sounds, our smells, our tastes, our touches, the things going on in our minds, and we notice this hurts, this is unpleasant, this is painful. The mind of aversion, the mind of greed. It's not a mistake. It's meeting the flood. We're, we're right on that raft. We are right on that raft. We don't cross the flood by magically transcending the flood as if we've built a hovercraft and just float across, fly across above the flood. We are in touch with the flood. And so we meet dukkha. The other day, Alexis, in his talk, he said that he talked about, again, that it's not a mistake that we meet the dukkha. And in fact, that it's, there's the, it's the purpose of meeting the dukkha is that the wisdom grows. The, wis- the understanding happens as we contact the dukkha. Maybe, maybe uh, he mentioned Joseph's famous uh, quote that we, um, we'd like to have insight into dukkha without experiencing dukkha. <laughs> but it doesn't happen that way. The contact with the dukkha is where the wisdom grows as we're contacting it with the Eightfold Path as our support, with the, path, with the, with the support of wise view, of wise intention, of understanding the perspective that we bring to practice, which we've been talking about, the perspective of understanding, you know, as we talked about with the hindrances in particular, that if we are bringing mindfulness to that hindrance, if anger is arising, and we are knowing anger in the present moment with mindfulness, it's not functioning as a hindrance. 
It's functioning as our path. When we're lost in anger, the Eightfold Path isn't supporting us. But when we bring wise understanding, wise intention, ethical conduct, and wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration to our whatever's arising. Maybe it's as simple as sights and sounds, but maybe it's a hindrance attack. When we're bringing that perspective, we are crossing the flood, and yet we're getting wet. We are getting wet. Then it mentions making effort with hands and feet. Supported by the raft and making an effort with the hands and feet, they got safely across to the far shore. So this speaks to, to me, it speaks to the, um, you know, we don't just get on a raft and hope for the best. You know, we, we, we know basically the direction of the far shore. It may be in the midst of that vast expanse of water that we don't quite know where the far shore is. And we have to have other, other guides for us. We may, we may use the, the, uh, the feeling of, the, of the, um, the moisture of the air as a guide, or we may use the stars as a guide to help guide us towards the far shore. In our practice, we use wise view and wise intention, this perspective of recognizing what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, Essentially, we, we explore cultivating the wholesome, letting go of the unwholesome, or being aware of the unwholesome. Again, you know, the, that, that exploration of if something unwholesome is arising, when we bring awareness to it, it's like it's turned us back towards the far shore. It's turned us back in the direction of crossing the flood. Because that unwholesome state of mind is no longer kind of driving the mind or running the show. Instead, wise mindfulness and wise effort and wise concentration are allowing us to meet it and learn. Learn something about that challenge, that difficulty. Heading us towards freedom through the growth, the development of wisdom, understanding And so thinking about this analogy, again, you know, the making the effort with the hands and feet, thinking about the way uh, a vast expanse of water works or a flood works, you know, sometimes in crossing, uh, crossing a river or going across a body of water, sometimes the conditions may kind of be the wind at your face, or the current going against you, and you have to work. You have to actually really paddle. You have to work hard with your hands and feet to keep the raft going in the direction. 
Sometimes it feels like you're, as the, the Red Queen says in Alice Through the Looking Glass, I think, it takes all the running you can do to stay in one place here. Sometimes it feels like that, that we're working really hard and not making a lot of headway. feels that way. And yet, no amount of effort when it's connected with this perspective of wise view, no amount of effort is wasted. There's an analogy that um, my colleague Gil Fronstall uses around this sense that you're not getting anywhere sometimes. He, he, he uses the analogy of chopping a big piece of wood. If you have this big piece of wood and you take a hatchet and you come down on the piece of wood with that hatchet, pretty unlikely that piece of wood is going to split the first time. So you keep, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, keep making that hatchet movement. And at some point, as you do that, bring the hatchet down and the log splits. I know that when I did this, I really loved splitting logs when I was a teenager. Uh, whenever we went camping, I would, I would ask to do that. I just loved that feeling of hitting the log and just feeling it split like that. And, and I always thought it was just like, I just hit it right that time. You know, that's what I thought, you know. But Gil points out that each time you hit that log, it's weakening the fibers inside of the log. You don't see it from the outside. You don't see that weakening happening from the outside. And then at some point you hit it and there's been enough weakening and the log splits. Every single moment before when you hit that log and nothing seemed to happen, that contributed to the possibility that it split the last time. So it can be like that with our practice. The, we look, we, we, we look for progress. You know, we look for, how do I know that I'm, I'm doing okay? Or how do I, you know, we look for those log splitting moments. But so much of our practice has this gradual nature. This wi- gentle wearing away, gentle weakening of greed, aversion, and delusion. And then sometimes there's a moment where we see aversion just drop away. Or we see, as I mentioned the other day, the arising of the thought of self-hatred and knowing, this is just a thought. This is the mind thinking this thought and believing it. It has no reality other than what the mind is constructing. Seeing that in that moment was like that log falling apart. But I'd spent weeks watching self-hatred, watching, feeling the pain of it, feeling the, the struggle of it, understanding little bits and pieces of it. But all of those moments contributed to that moment of really understanding in a moment how self-hatred is simply a construct in the mind. 
something, a thought being believed. And so this is a lot of our work. We, we, we really just have to keep a steady kind of effort, even in the face of it seeming like making no progress. There's a, a sense in that way that this really has, we, it touches into faith and trust. If we are meeting our experience with mindfulness and wise effort and concentration, we're able to stay with our experience. Whatever is unfolding is heading us in the right direction. So it does take some trust at times. Have the confidence to not keep checking, like checking, you know, oh, I've been mindful for three minutes. Have I, have I understood something yet? But really, rather just patience, a lot of patience with that process of wisdom developing. Sometimes I've seen wisdom, wisdom kind of developing and presenting itself after the fact, like um, recognizing that a pattern, a, a very strong pattern of, in this case, anger, had disappeared. I had been watching this pattern of anger over the course of weeks, maybe even months, maybe even years. <laughs> that was a long time. And just seeing this anger, you know, anger come and recognizing, wow, really hard to be with that anger. I need to just be with my feet right now and just like setting it aside over and over again, setting aside the anger. And then beginning to recognize over the course of that months, those months, that the anger started happening less often. So it was getting weaker. It was clear to me that it was getting weaker because it wasn't happening so much. And then one day, I noticed it hadn't happened for a really long time. And I kind of thought, actually in thinking about it, it's like, wow, I haven't experienced that anger for a long time. In that moment of realizing that I hadn't experienced that anger in a long time, of course the person, it was a particular person I was angry with, that person came to my mind. But I could not even call up the anger. I couldn't find it anywhere. I didn't believe it. I was like, gotta be there somewhere. It's gotta be there somewhere. It had disappeared without my knowing when it disappeared. So I I understood in retrospect that that had released. So sometimes we don't even get to see the release. We just get to experience the benefits of it sometime later. So very different ways that wisdom grows as we meet the flood, make the effort to just stay present. Sometimes when we're crossing a stream or we've got the wind at our back, it's kind of smooth sailing, 
It may be that there's a little bit of kind of directing we need to do. You know, just make sure we're not like getting caught on, on that rock or that branch, but just a little, a little steering is necessary. So sometimes in our practice, the effort can be lighter. There's an analogy I sometimes um, like to explore around this kind of, around making effort in our practice because it's, um, you know, we have a habit, I think, of, of making effort in our practice in the way that we tend to make effort in our lives, which is if we have to do something really hard in our lives, we gather all our strength and, like, apply it, like, right at the beginning. And so sometimes we may have that sense of sitting down, trying to, okay, we're going to sit down in our meditation and going to sit here for 45 minutes and I'm going to stay present for the whole 45 minutes. And it's like we pick up the entire 45 minutes in that first second and try to gather the effort we need to stay present for the whole 45 minutes. And it doesn't work that way. We can be present for a moment. And then we can do it again and again and again and again. The analogy that I, I like to explore for this is that of um, riding on one of those little kick scooters that kids ride, ride on, a little uh, like razor scooter, I think they're called. You have your one foot on the scooter bed and the other foot you use to tap the ground to get the momentum of the scooter going. You could at the beginning, make one really gigantic push. But it's probably going to be pretty wobbly if you do that. It's not going to lead to a stability of the scooter. So it's much more skillful to just do these little tap, 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 tap. Let the scooter gain some momentum. And then, after there's some momentum, you can just ride the scooter. You get feeling of that scooter riding, And you get familiar with when it starts to feel a little wobbly and put your foot down and tap again. Applying effort in the practice is more like that. At the beginning, we connect frequently. If you're practicing with the breath, every half breath, can I be with this half breath? Just enough effort to be with half a breath. And then another half a breath. Just enough effort that much, right now, be with an in-breath. How hard is that? And now, an out-breath. Just enough. That's all you need. And we just keep that tap, tap, tap going. And as we do that, as we make enough effort to stay with an in-breath, or if you're doing another kind of practice, open awareness practice, it may be just enough effort to be with this experience. Am I aware of what? And now, am I aware of what? Just, just connecting moment after moment. A light touch, just enough to be with this moment of experience. And as we do that, as we explore that, light touch of being present, 
a momentum of mindfulness starts to build. We can get familiar with that experience of what it feels like to ride that wave of mindfulness. At that point, we don't have to keep tapping. We don't have to keep reminding ourselves every single breath, perhaps. Maybe, maybe we can just sit here and just be with four or five breaths without really much effort at all. We get familiar with when it feels like the mindfulness is getting a little soft or mushy. Bring in another, really connect. Just like tapping the scooter. So this is how we can explore this light touch of effort. It's a light touch, but it, there's a commitment to it. It's not commitment like bearing down commitment. It's commitment to keep going. The, the walking, we can do this in the walking too. There have been times if my mind is really scattered in the walking meditation, I'll pick a spot like two feet out on my walking path, find a little stone or a little leaf there. It's like, okay, can I make it to that? You know, it's like two feet, a step, two steps. Can I be mindful for two steps? Yeah, that was, I could do that. Okay, now pick another spot. That spot on the sidewalk, can I be mindful until I get there? Just like, it's like hand over hand. Gently pulling yourself along in the mindfulness. Just enough effort to be present. Ride that wave of mindfulness and then do it again and again. And then sometimes we have the wind at our back on this stream, on this raft, and the current is heading us right in the right direction. And all we need to do is just let go and let the current carry us. Sometimes in our practice, mindfulness and wisdom are strong enough that it doesn't require a personal effort. We don't need to remind ourselves to be mindful. It's just happening. And if that's if that's happening, then making that effort is actually getting in the way of that unfolding of wisdom and mindfulness. And so there's so many different ways of making effort and the conditions. The conditions require us to make different kinds of effort at different times. As we're crossing a flood, we're not always going to have the wind at our back and we're not always going to be able to just flow with ease. Sometimes there may be moments where we can flow with ease and then conditions, there's an eddy, a whirlpool, and we have to work to get through that. I think there can be a sense sometimes with effort in the practice that, again, it functions something like effort in our normal lives, that when we've learned how to do something, like we've learned how to, how to ride a bicycle, then we don't forget and we can just do it like that. And we don't run into the same problems that we did when we first learned how to ride a bicycle. 
with practice, the conditions are so varied and we, we may have stretches of time in practice where the flow seems very natural and easy and, and it's, it's like, this seems so easy, how can I not, how can I not just do this all the time? It's so obvious. It's so obvious that something arising is just something arising and anger's not a problem. It's just, just a fleeting thing and it vanishes as soon as it's seen. How can I not see this all the time? Of course I understand this now and, and we think we've figured it out. <laughs> and then conditions change and we discover that, well, actually maybe it's not so obvious. Conditions change and we're caught again. And so the level of effort that we make doesn't progress from making a lot of effort to making a little less effort to making just kind of riding the the wave of mindfulness and wisdom. It doesn't tend to just head in that direction. Sometimes it's sometimes it's very simple and sometimes we really have to apply ourselves to not get pulled under, not get pulled into the whirlpools, to not go down the rabbit hole, to get sucked under the, the, the waves. Sometimes we really have to make effort. And so recognizing the conditions, we've talked about this over the course of these weeks, we've talked about skillful means for meeting challenge when, when there's a kind of an overwhelming state of mind or something where we really have to take some care to be with it. The second analogy is, um, I'll, read, I'll read this one too. This is a different crossing the flood analogy. This one for me just had a real resonance as I touched into the language. The Buddha was meditating in a a grove and a, a deva, a heavenly being, came to him and asked, How, dear sir, did you cross the flood? The Buddha responded, By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining, you cross the flood? The Buddha responded, When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not not halting and by not straining, I cross the flood. So the commentaries point out that this, uh, this image of neither tarrying nor hurrying, that's the translation I particularly resonated with and that kept coming back to me in my mind. Here, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as by not halting and not straining. For me, not tarrying and not hurrying. By not tarrying and not hurrying, I cross the flood. And the, um, 
The commentaries say that this is meant to be a little bit paradoxical because typically if you're crossing a stream, you know, if you're crossing a stream that you've got, you've got, um, you know, rocks in the stream, you, you find a foothold, you pause there, you get your balance and you search for the next foothold and you, you kind of go to the next one and so you kind of halt and then you move and then you halt and then you search and then you move. And the commentaries say that this, par- this is supposed to be, it's supposed to jar the mind a little bit to, oh, it's not the way I would think about crossing a flood or crossing a stream. It's different. It's got a different quality to it by neither tarrying nor hurrying. One of the pieces that I ins- I'm inspired by in this particular analogy is that the Buddha says, When I came to a standstill, I sank. And when I struggled, I got swept away. And so basically, the Buddha struggled. He sank. He got swept away. He had to experiment. He learned through his own practice how to cross the flood. He made mistakes. He, he tarried and he sank and he hurried and he, was swept aw- he got swept away. The Buddha had to experiment. He tried different things, noticed what was helpful, noticed what's not helpful. We need to do this in our own practice. Understand what's helpful and what's not helpful. For me, this image of neither tarrying nor hurrying is one of meeting every moment of experience. That's the the kind of visceral feeling it gives. Neither tarrying with the moment. As we think think about this flood as just the stream of moments. We neither tarry with the moment, holding on to it, trying to trying to keep it or understand it or fix it or change it, nor do we hurry past it trying to get to the next moment. Give each and every moment its due, its full due, its full honoring, whatever it is. And then realize that that moment is passing. And meet the next moment moment after moment, really meeting every moment. And sometimes I would use that language in my mind when I found myself in a struggle or a period of time where I felt like I needed some inspiration. I would, I would use this language, neither tarrying nor hurrying neither tarrying nor hurrying, meet each moment. It helped me to just settle and connect. Connect with this. Not connect and hold and and try to keep it. Or, you know, even sometimes I find with with certain kinds of experiences, it's like we, we, we hold on to it in order to look at it rather than recognizing it's already changing as we're looking at it. Like a a handful of sand 
We can hold on to a handful of sand and, and try to understand a handful of sand in that way. And there's some things we can learn about it that way. And we can also relax our hands and just feel the hand slipping, the sand, the sand slipping through our fingers and learn something different about the sand in that way. Neither tarrying nor hurrying, meeting each moment. The end of the simile of the raft. The Buddha says, when this person got across and arrived at the far shore, they might think thus, this raft has been very helpful to me since supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder and then go wherever I want. Now, do you think that that man is doing what should be done with the raft? And his disciple said, no. And the Buddha went on and said, when that person got to the far shore, if they thought thus, this raft has been helpful to me since supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to haul it on the dry land or set it adrift in the water and then go wherever I want. It is by doing that that the person would be doing what should be done with the raft. So I have shown you how the Dharma is similar to a raft being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. When you know the Dharma to be similar to a raft, you should abandon even the teachings, how much more so things contrary to the teachings. So this is an interesting piece. Abandon the teachings. So, pointing out in this part of the analogy, the raft is abandoned when one has reached the far shore. We can't let go of the teachings, we can't let go of the practices too soon. We try to let go of the raft in the middle of the river of the expanse of water, you'll be, you'll be drowned. We need to use the raft, we need to use the teachings to navigate the flood. We can't think. And sometimes we do it, you know, at times we, we have this sense of... Um, Realizing that we're kind of holding on to mindfulness or holding on to being a meditator, having that identity of being a meditator. My very first 10-day meditation retreat, it did, it was pretty clear to me I was constructing an identity as a meditator. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to be a meditator and I'm going to be good at this. I'm going to... I'm going to try to make, you know, really do this. 
And so, you know, there was a construction, there was a construction of an identity and I did recognize that that was something new. And I did hear the teachings that, you know, said clinging to identities is suffering. And yet, somewhat to my credit, I decided and realized that, well, this seems like a useful identity. I don't think I'll let go of this one just yet. And indeed, this is partly how our practice can unfold. In some ways, we we hold to the teachings, we hold to the, we even may cling to them. Hold on for dear life to mindfulness and, and, and wise effort. If we're holding on for dear life to mindfulness and wise effort, while we're being uh, uh, battered by greed, aversion, and delusion, that holding to the wholesome qualities of mindfulness and effort there's some, there's some suffering there, but it is helping us let go of a much greater suffering. And so this is, this is a lot of how our practice releases uh, happens. It's kind of like stage releases over time that we, we meet great uh, challenges, the kind of grosser and more obvious forms of greed, aversion, and delusion by perhaps clinging to mindfulness, maybe craving being a meditator, maybe that happens. Helping us to let go of a, of a more unskillful state, we construct another identity. At some point, however, what happens is that um, as those more obvious forms of suffering begin to fall away, our mind begins to get attuned to subtler forms of suffering, including the suffering of clinging to mindfulness. At that point, when you feel the suffering of clinging to mindfulness, like in my example of of having that identity of being a meditator, I I wasn't in that first retreat, or even I'd say the first few years of retreat, suffering over that identity. I was suffering with anger, and suffering with self-hatred. That, that connection to that identity of being a meditator was helping those to weaken. And then, as those patterns began to weaken, yes, I had to look at the suffering of that identity. Oh yeah, I want to be the best meditator in the room. Oh yeah, oh, it's so painful to be comparing myself to everybody, to be comparing myself to my best friend who's on retreat looking like she's so concentrated. Oh, she's, her mind is so concentrated and look at mine, it's all, it's all all over the place and oh, I'm never gonna be as concentrated as she is. All of that identity of being a meditator being felt at that point. When we feel the suffering I sometimes say, let suffering be your guide. You know, when you feel the suffering of a clinging, when we feel the suffering of holding to mindfulness, feel the suffering of wanting to understand something, 
that's when we begin to explore the suffering of it. Not to let go and say, oh, I should stop being mindful now. But explore the tightness, explore the suffering of that. That's our path. We meet the suffering. That's the, that's the flood at that point. We don't let go of the raft before we're across the flood. And yet the Buddha says that we let go of the teachings. My understanding of that is you know, based on my readings and my study and a little bit of my own experience that the more greed, aversion, and delusion fall away, the more the mind naturally gravitates towards living with wise view and wise understanding, with ethical conduct, with wise mindfulness. The effort is probably not so necessary to do. And so there's even one sutta that describes someone who is fully awakened as being someone who just lives the Eightfold Path. It's not necessary to hold it. It's not necessary to think about it. It is the natural manifestation of someone for whom greed, aversion, and delusion have fallen away. And so there's no need to hold to the teachings. They're being lived. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.